Amen. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, we have direct access to God. So would you please join with me now as we take our requests to him. Lord God, we have gathered here just like any other Sunday. But today we have set aside a time to look back with extra clarity on your victory over sin and death. Over 2,000 years ago, you sent your son to die a cruel death on a cross. But this death was not like any other, for it was not final. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, did not stay dead, but rose up from the grave, and in doing so, claimed victory over sin and the finality of the grave. Lord God, your plan to rescue humanity from the power of sin was accomplished through Jesus Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. And while we deserve to be there, he was in our place. And he is victorious over the power of, grave, of the grave and has given life everlasting. Lord, we confess that we do not remember your death and resurrection enough. While the good news should always be on the front of our minds, we are slow to remember your work on the cross. While we should let this good news inform our life, we go through our lives forgetting your work. Forgive us for setting aside only one day a year that we can put your resurrection in the front of our hearts. Give us a desire to daily look back on your death in our place. May we remember that because of the sinless Savior died, our souls are free from sin and death. Lord, we thank you for the gift of life that you've given to us. We also thank you uh, for other churches, Lord, that have gathered this morning here in, in the Salem area, but also in the greater Pacific Northwest. We specifically thank you for Ed Edgewood Bible Church in Edgewood, Washington, and Chapel Church in Puyallup. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that they were able to do a joint Good Friday service just a few days ago. We pray that this morning, as those churches have gathered on their own, that your word would be proclaimed there among them, and that there would be much fruit from the, in the lives of the members there in, in those churches. And Lord, if there's visitors gathering with them this morning, we pray that they would come to know a sa the saving faith of your good work on the cross that your power over sin can be their power over sin. And also we pray this morning for ourselves. We pray this morning specifically for those in our church who are new to parenting, who have entered into this stage of life, whether it's as a first-time parent or even just adding another one to an already busy household. Lord, this brings with it a whole new set of challenges, challenges that include a loss of sleep, strained marriage relationships, unknown health issues, and a variety of other uh, it, things that just come up with raising and, and bringing a new life into this world. Lord, we pray for those who are experiencing the growing pains of a growing family. Give them wisdom in these situations, and may they have a peace that can only come from you. May they think with a clear head and, and prioritize their relationship with you, Lord. We also pray for their marriages, that they may find time to care for one another as they care for their children. We pray that they don't lose sight of the health of their, uh, their marriage, Lord, in this time. We also, this morning, Lord, pray for the word. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us and have summoned us to sit 
and listen. And we pray that Hans would speak your word, Lord, and that it would bring much fruit in each of our lives. Amen. Amen. He is risen. Now that you said that, you can sit. It is so good to be with you on this Sunday in which we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Across time and space, God's people have met on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, to remember and celebrate the salvation brought about by the cross and the new life evidenced in the resurrection of Jesus. At the same time, almost immediately in the New Covenant Church, a specific feast was enacted, celebrating the Sunday after the first full Passover moon in which we specifically commemorate Christ's resurrection from the dead. That is what we gather to celebrate this morning as the body of Christ. We gather to celebrate the new and eternal life brought about by Christ's resurrection. On that first Resurrection Sunday that we just heard narrated in Mark, The women were prepared to come and anoint the dead body of Jesus of Nazareth. They rose early on the first day of the week, went to the tomb, and were surprised to find the tomb open. And as they entered, they were shocked to find that the body of Christ was no longer there. And if not for an angelic messenger, they would not have known what happened to his body. To their amazement, this messenger appeared and informed them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. These simple words, he is risen, caused them to run, fleeing in fear from the tomb. Why? Because a dead man had resurrected. I think that's probably what I would do, too. Their master, their rabbi, who was most decidedly dead, had risen from the dead. New life had come, and all that he had taught was proven true. And to add to that, he walked on the earth another 40 days, showing himself to hundreds, proving his existence in his resurrected body. The resurrection of Christ is one of the most historically verifiable events that has ever occurred. But that's another sermon altogether. For us, 2,000 years later, the idea of new life is a bit of an abstract thought. Often we make it too practical in simply talking about a change or a reformation of our life from before we knew Christ. It's as if Christianity is a New Year's resolution in which we embark on a new life because we change our diet or our workout regimen, but then we succumb to old forces. Or perhaps we think about it wrongly in the way that it's a version of a spiritual mulligan, like in golf where we just keep getting redos when we sin and yet continue in that sin. But these shallow ideas do not capture the awe and fear that the women felt as they fled from the tomb. No, it is not just a reformation. It is not just a do-over. What they witnessed was death to life, not just a reformation. This new life does not make sense unless we first grasp the fullness of death that was assured before it. Our sin wasn't something that simply led to a state in need of change, in need of reform. Our sin spiritually killed us. It required a new life. It required resurrection. When I was a little guy, I know that's hard for many of you to believe, but I was once, around three or four years old. I was about six feet tall, just kidding. (laughs) 
I experienced an event that was forever etched in my mind as one of my first memories. Much of it is cloudy, but the overall experience has stuck with me. I was fishing with my dad on a dock, and for some reason, I found myself too close to the edge, and I fell into the water. Now, I do not recall how deep the water was or how cold it was, but I very vividly remember going all the way into the water, being fully submerged. As a small child that did not know how to swim, but by nature only knew how to sink, I had one option, to sink to my death. I could only drown. That was my only option. But even though I was, at that moment, physically alive and probably even flailing a bit, I was as good as dead, should no one come to my rescue. But what is most vivid in that memory is the giant hand that reached down from my father on the dock, grabbed me, even somewhat against my own will, and pulled me out of the water. I was too small to cooperate or assist him. It was simply a hand that grasped my clothes and pulled me, dripping wet, to safety. Now, it's odd to think about that moment, this many years removed from it. In my own mind, in the mind of my family, it was probably just one more episode in the life of a rambunctious boy. But for me, looking back, it helps me to understand a slight bit this idea of death and new life. You see, I didn't need a redo. I didn't need to become better I didn't need a reform. I needed rescue. I needed life. This death and new life is at the center of our faith as Christians. And it is at the center of what we celebrate this morning. Amen? Amen. And so now that we've walked through the narrative of what happened on that first resurrection morning, as we walked through it on Friday, leading up to that point, and as Sam read to us from Mark to hear of the resurrection, now that we've walked through it, Let's ask one of the apostles to describe for us what really occurred in the resurrection of Jesus. And let's ask him to proclaim to us why it is a day so worthy of celebration and joy and thanksgiving. Why don't you turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As we look at the fact that on that first Sunday, we were given proof by Christ that we were saved from our sin by God's grace. Saved from our sin by God's grace. The best news that we could ever get. Let's read the Apostles' letter to the local assembly of believers at Ephesus, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. What we see first this morning is the background of our rebellion and spiritual death. The background of our rebellion and spiritual death there in verses 1 through 3. On Friday evening, we spent time as a church in lament and confession, witnessing the progression of the suffering of Christ as he was betrayed, unfairly tried in a kangaroo court, condemned, scourged, humiliated, and ultimately crucified, murdered for a crime that he did not commit. We lament because as Christians, we realize that he did this willingly on our behalf so that he might save us from enslavement to sin, evil, and disobedience, and so that he might reconcile us to the Father and Creator God. Why was this the only way? Why did it require this gruesome death? To answer that question, we must first look at what Paul is outlining in these verses. The context of this passage is that Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus to have a full understanding and knowledge around what Christ has done for them and who Christ is in their midst as a church. To help them, he reminds them here what state they were in before they came to know Christ and became part of his resurrection to new life. He begins with, you were dead. And friends, this is where my earlier illustration from my own life completely breaks down as a metaphor. For the reality of our sin was not that we had slipped off the dock of righteousness and holiness and fell into sin. It isn't even that we were alive, flailing and kicking as we drowned in our sin. The state of humanity due to the rebellion of the head of humanity, Adam, is that we are spiritually dead without Christ. To further the metaphor, it's as if at the fall of Adam and Eve, all humanity had drowned in sin, all energy had passed from our lifeless bodies, our organs were no longer active, and we were laying at the bottom of the ocean, decaying and lifeless. We were dead in our sin. That is the measure of the word dead here. The Greek word nekros means unable to respond to any impulse or to perform any function. Unable, ineffective, dead, and powerless. God told Adam and Eve in the garden that they should not decide for themselves what is good and what is evil, but should instead trust their creator they should not take upon themselves the knowledge of good and evil, for in so doing, they would be separating themselves out from under the covenantal relationship and covering of God himself, the giver of life. You see, the creation cannot exist apart from its creative source. Its only option is an immediate spiritual death and an eventual physical death. We're like those machines that have a little energy left in them when you unplug them from the wall, and they may last a bit, but eventually they will die. And so he told them that the result, the wages of sin, is death. But the adversary of God lied to them and deceived them to believe that physical animation is the same as the eternal life that proceeds only from relationship with the Creator. 
You will not surely die, he told them, but you will become like God. False on both accounts. For in that moment, they gave their authority over to God's adversary and subjected themselves and the creation over which they were to reign to futility and sin. In that moment, as the societal and spiritual and physical head of humanity, Adam and all of his descendants were given over to a state of sin and rebellion against God, and that includes you and me. Our relationship with our life-giving source was destroyed, and just as we are, in a sense, contained in the lives and actions and biology of our forefathers, all humanity was contained in Adam and therefore given over to the consequence of his rebellion. We became, in that moment, dead in our sin. So much so that we have a predisposition to walk in that same rebellion, no matter what influences come upon us in this physical life. If you don't believe me, hang out with one of our small children in our church. We are predisposed to sin. But some may protest and say, but I'm not as bad as some. But friends, there are no degrees of difference in deadness. You're not kind of dead. You're not partially dead. You're dead. And sure, you may not be as wicked as you could be, but this is more of a statement that while we may not be as wicked as is possible, we are still dead. And we have an inability to raise ourselves from that spiritual state. We have an inability to choose and follow Christ of our own accord. And Paul continues by breaking this truth down into the enslaving forces of the world, the flesh, and the adversary of God, who is the prince of the power of the air. All of mankind, given over to ourselves, follows the course of this world. All of us become entrapped and enslaved to the trends and fashions. You might say, Hans, you're not entrapped to any fashion. True, but I still am entrapped in the world. We're trapped in the ideals of this world. We become so enslaved that we are blinded even to their existence and how much power they have over us. Secondly, we follow the prince of the power of the air. This was a name that spoke of Satan's demonic and spiritual nature. He was and is the leader of the rebellion of angelic beings against God. And in so doing, he is constantly looking for opportunities to further cement the rebellion of humanity against God in each one of our lives. If we do not have Christ as Lord, then we do follow his demonic power. We either have Christ as Lord or we have Satan as Lord. There is no middle. And third, we operate in the flesh under the energizing of the spirit of disobedience. We looked at this as a church last week, the counterfeit spirit, the spirit that leads us in disobedience, not obedience. We are driven not by affection for God and his moral law, but by the law of our own enticements, our own temptations. We have taken God-given good appetites and perverted them to give glory only to ourselves in our own depravity. In all these ways, all humanity has been given over to the rebellious nature chosen by the head of humanity himself, Adam. So what is owed to us, what we deserve, therefore, is the righteous and just wrath of God. It is required of a just God that he pour out that wrath. 
It is our very nature that we have become the offspring of the rebellion and the adversary. God's wrath is required to serve his holy justice. We are by nature children of wrath. Now, this topic of justice has become large in our current society. Everywhere you look, people are crying out for justice. Yet repentance, confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation seem to be absent, while the call for vengeance is everywhere. Retailers are attempting to grow their profits by advertising their awareness of this cry for justice. And people are even now classified not by their actions, but by the ways that those like them have historically oppressed or been oppressed. Our society is hell-bent on using the idea of justice to meet their own ends, but not to glorify the one who defines and is the source of justice. True justice originates first and foremost from humanity's rebellion against a holy, loving, good, benevolent, and gracious God and God's response to it. All justice flows from this biblical justice and holds accountable every human ever to walk the earth, regardless of what sin has been done to them. We are all guilty in the eyes of a holy God. All are guilty under the wrath of God for our rebellion. And to be clear, friends, this wrath is not capricious. It is not like human wrath. It is not spiteful nor malicious, nor is it based in revenge. It is not inconsistent or based on emotion in the moment. It is based on the immutable nature of God and his unchanging holiness. He is just and the one who brings justice. His wrath will be executed calmly, consistently, and perfectly. And all creation will acknowledge, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. This, dear friends, this is the background of our rebellion and spiritual death. This was the weight of sin that Christ came to take upon himself. This was the weight that caused him to cry out in grief in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the sin that he became, which caused him to cry out in lament, asking the Father why he had been forsaken. This is why he took on the wrath of the just triune God on the cross. This is the background of our rebellion and spiritual death. And if there were nothing else but this wrath poured out on humanity, God would be just and God would be holy. Paul paints this background perfectly in verses 1 through 3. And in so doing, he sets the stage for two of the most beautiful words in all of creation, which perfectly capture God's work of salvation. Let's read verses 4 through 7 again. Everybody say the first two words with me, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here we see the merciful salvation of God in Christ Jesus. The merciful salvation of God in Christ Jesus. 
but God. Two more hope-laden words have not been uttered in the English language. The hopeless and pessimistic view of humanity that Paul laid out in verses 1 through 3 could not be solved by man's energy, by man's capability. It required the one being that is outside of time and space to enter in and bring a way of rescue. But God. And who is this God that is mentioned here? He is not just any God of the pagan world. He is not the God of self. He is the God historically known as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He is the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and called himself the great I Am. He is the one who, when declaring the truth of his own character to Moses, said this about himself. First, he called himself the Lord, the Lord. Behind that Hebrew is the, or behind that, that, those words is the Hebrew name that we would say out loud, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The core of God's character is that which was evidenced in the salvation brought through Jesus Christ. At the death and resurrection of Jesus, this character was perfectly displayed. God by no means cleared the guilty, and yet in his compassion, he stepped into our place. And it's out of this overflow of grace and mercy, this richness and greatness of love that God acted to bring salvation to those whom he had promised redemption since before the foundations of the world. Remember, friends, if God saved none, he would have been just. If he had saved one, he would have been infinitely merciful. But he has saved not just one, but an entire new covenant people from amidst the nations. And this love, like his just wrath, is not a worldly thing. It is not a love that is flippant or romantic, based on emotion or capricious. It does not come and go based on what he gets out of the deal. It is a steadfast love based solely on his unchangeable character, his long-suffering and faithful covenant commitment to those whom he calls to himself. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul also notes the clear truth that this merciful salvation in Christ Jesus was completed even when we were also dead in our trespasses. You see, a worldly love, even a worldly mercy, is initiated because of some transactional view of relationships. Behind our transactional way of relating, we think, I will love this person because they will make me feel fulfilled and good. Or I will show them mercy because then they will be in my debt. But friends, God is not like us. He is completely what's called self-derived. He is complete in himself and needs no one and no thing. This is a fancy theological term called God's aseity. He is self-existent. And so only God's love and mercy is 100% pure in motive. That is why it is the baseline from which all other love is defined. 
And so the love and mercy that he showed in sending Christ to die in our place so that our sin might be forgiven, it was not just unconditional, it was actually contra-conditional. Our state of spiritual death was a result of our acting contrary to his moral law, and we were his enemies and rebellious to his reign in our lives, and yet, in the face of that, he saved us anyway. How did he do that? Well, just as my father reached down into those cold waters and in spite of my ignorance and impending death and flailing against him, he pulled me to safety. God has done the same for those that he has saved, but he has done so on an eternal spiritual level. On the cross, Jesus was the scapegoat and sacrificial lamb upon which the wrath of God was poured out. He was the substitute that took my place and yours in our sin. And in so doing, he paid the penalty that you and I owed to the righteous God. In this, he reconciled us to the Father. Excuse me. He forgave us our debt of sin. But even more than that, he resuscitated our lifeless spiritual selves. He, notice that he is the active agent here. It says that he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. Just as Jesus was dead and then resurrected to new life, God the Father took we who were dead and made us alive together with Christ. This resurrection will be fully understood after these earthly bodies fade away and we are resurrected to a new heavenly body. But even now in our souls, we have been made alive. Our bodies are dying and decaying but our spirits have been made alive. And this is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. God breathed into him. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. In his resurrection, he gave us life. In Christ, we have been made alive never to suffer the consequences of spiritual death. We have been reanimated spiritually to a state in which we are now capable of having an affection that moves towards God. We couldn't do that before. We were unable. We were dead. And Paul emphasizes again, this salvation is grace. By grace you have been saved. It is not something you could do on your own, nor did, it, did you earn it. It was unearned, undeserved rescue and favor. And this grace continues because not only are we forgiven our sin, not only are we reanimated spiritually to be able to lean into our creator in loving relationship, but we have been resurrected to rule and reign with him as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now, you might rightly ask, what are we ruling over? Look at the world. It's in tatters. But this is where we understand the biblical idea of the here, but not yet. The kingdom rule of the here, but not yet. Our victory has been inaugurated in Christ, but it has not been consummated in fullness. And so we live in this in-between. And so while the evil motivations and evil authorities we mentioned earlier, such as the prince of the power of the air, are still active, they are bound by the gospel and their activity is mitigated. And they know that their time is short as we are learning in Revelation. 
They know this because Christ has conquered sin and death and broken his people free from their reign of tyranny. Because of this, we need never worry or fear the kingdom of darkness or even physical death, for we are victorious in Christ. Just as we were dead, Christ died. Just as Christ has been made alive, we too are made alive and will be in fullness. And because we have this hope, we can walk in victory over the kingdom of darkness. And finally, Paul says that this mercy and grace that God has lavished upon us is merely a taste of the eternal kindness he will show us as we dwell with him in glory. Paul has done an exquisite job of painting God's mercy and forgiveness for us. So much so that we might need to pause and wonder, oh Lord, why me? And we as a church might pause and ask the question, why us? Why would you save me as opposed to others? Why would you save us as opposed to others? Why would you give us grace and make us alive and raise us up and seat us with you? As if anticipating this question, Paul next declares that salvation is by God's grace alone through faith. Salvation is by God's grace alone through faith. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This same statement was first noted in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Do you think Paul is trying to get a point across to us? Paul emphasizes it again here. By grace you have been saved. Grace is unearned, unmerited favor. In other words, God does not owe it to us. If he owed it to us because of our character or our quality or some self-defined value in myself or because I have done some work on his behalf, then, friends, it would no longer be grace. That is why we say that we are saved by grace alone. The second you add anything to grace, it is no longer grace. In the infinite world of options for affecting our own salvation, there is only one singular way it can be accomplished, and that is by, the, by no work of our own. It is the free gift of God. That is why he makes us alive. He has to be the active agent in accomplishing the salvation. And we are then existent in a state of having been delivered from our sin and the wrath of God. This is the base upon which the true Christian faith stands alone. For all other religions that view life through a lens of karma, or some kind of works-based view of righteousness, they earn and achieve things like enlightenment or paradise or heaven. Even the Catholic Church believes that it is through the means of baptism that God pours out his grace upon the one being baptized. It is through an action of a human. And within many Protestant denominations, the work performed is one of mental assent. God becomes beholden to the acting human which is contrary to the Bible's truth. If you make 
this mental ascent. If you believe in a certain pet doctrine, these false views would teach that you have achieved the Gnostic ideal and gained God's good favor. But friends, none of these are grace in which you and I had no part and merited no action. So what then is the medium or instrument through which we are given this free gift of grace? Paul says it's through faith. This word pistuo means that we trust in the giver of the gift. We give our lives to him in allegiance. Friends, this is not the work of believing or thinking. This is more like a trust fall in which we were already falling. And we just simply trusted that God was there. We trusted that he would save us. That trust is not a work because it is based upon the character of the one who is saving us. But even this, Paul notes, is not something we can simply do on our own in our dead spiritual state. We can't even trust. The base Greek can be heard as, even this does not originate within yourselves. Let me say that again. Even this, even faith, does not originate within yourselves. I love it when people will call someone else a person of faith, as if it's just innate within them. No, friends, that's not true. It is the gift of God. God gives grace that goes before us by the Holy Spirit to even open our hearts up to the faith by which we received his gift of salvation. And this, dear friends, for the Jewish Paul and the Jewish first century Christians was a fulfillment of God's long-awaited promise, his faithful promise of a work he would do by his Holy Spirit amidst those that were his own. And notice, as we read what's going to come up on the screen here in a second, the emphasis upon grace and God's unearned, undeserved favor, that he alone is the active agent. This is from Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28. In the midst of all of Israel's sin and idolatry and the fact that they, even with God's law, could not save themselves and walk in righteousness and obedience, God says this through Ezekiel. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, in other words, it's not because of you, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, the great I am, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Who's doing all the work there? God. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Who's doing all the work there? And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Who's doing the work? And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who's doing the work? You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. 
Notice it's just a state. It's a state that they then exist in. For God has done the work by his overwhelming grace. It is this same idea that Paul is putting across in Ephesians. By the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, a way was made by which God could then justly pour out his Holy Spirit into the hearts of his new covenant people and call them to himself and give them faith in his gracious salvation. There is no work that we have done nor can do. There is no value in and of ourselves that could merit his action to save us. Like Paul, I can look at myself and understand that, in fact, I am the chiefest of sinners because I know this, and yet I can do nothing about it without him. Therefore, I am the chief of sinners. There is no part of my salvation for which I can boast that I have earned it or acted for it, no quality for which I can congratulate God for drawing me to himself. It is all a free gift of God. And Jesus came in the flesh and died a death he did not deserve and raised in the power of the Holy Spirit, was witnessed by hundreds, ascended into heaven, was enthroned at the right hand of the Father God, and the same Holy Spirit that did all of that in Christ was then poured out into his people, changing our sin-hardened hearts into hearts soft with love and gratitude for God. Even this was grace. And because our hearts have been turned toward God, it is now natural that we would live lives in allegiance to the reign of Christ over us. If we have been given the option now to choose righteousness, to follow after Christ, we will do the same just as easily as I sunk to the bottom of that water. The state we now inhabit is one that lifts us to Christ. And this is what Paul paints next in verse 10 as a seeming paradox. Take a look at verse 10 with me. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul, I thought you just said, not works. No, works didn't save us. But they are the outcome and evidence of our salvation. The outcome and evidence of our salvation. Because of the gracious work that God has actively performed in our lives in forgiving us, reconciling us to the Father, and drawing us into his people, and pouring out his Holy Spirit into his people, we can be seen as his artistry. He has masterfully begun the work of molding us back into images that reflect him. And so Paul rightly calls us God's workmanship. And in so doing, God has made us new in a way that is awe-inspiring as the original creation of Genesis 1, if not more so. And this completely kills the idea that God simply reforms his people and makes us better. That's a phrase you might hear a lot nowadays, isn't it? Do better. Friends, we cannot do better. No humanity can do better because we were dead in our sin. But Paul uses a different phrase here. He doesn't use a word of reform or change. He says we are created 
in Christ Jesus. Created. This word created is something new that never existed before. Just as at the beginning, Jesus has once again taken chaos and remade it in order for the glory of the Father. That's what he did in creation. That's what he did in the new creation, remaking each one of us. And this could only happen in the new work of resurrection that God evidenced in Jesus three days after his death. But we were not created to gain heaven and then continue to be enslaved in our sin. No, we have been set free by God's grace to choose righteousness, something we could never do before. And so those that have been created new in Christ Jesus will now evidence this God-given ability in our actions as we walk in a life that is submitted to God and living out his good works. This is not a me-focused sentiment, as if God ordained all the cosmos so I could live out my human potential in the path he's made for me. This is why I struggle with the phrase, God has a purpose for your life. That is a true statement, but it is so me-centric. God has a purpose for your life, and it is to glorify him. This is a God-focused sentiment. These works were prepared beforehand in that they were present in God before humanity ever existed. In other words, the actions we are taking as his new creation mirror and reflect his character to the world. And in so doing, more of those that Christ has saved by his grace will come to him because by God's grace, he uses us and our evangelistic efforts as the medium by which men and women are drawn to him. Our spirit-led obedience to God's law of love that existed in his character from the foundations of the earth evidences that we are his people. Friends, our obedience does not save us. It never could. It does not earn us salvation. It never could. We are already already covered that in depth. But it is the natural outpouring, the natural affection of a heart made new in Christ. And so we don't look to actions like reading our Bibles or serving God's people or rejoicing in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit because they save us. They cannot and will not. That is a works-based religion of legalism that voids the work of Christ of any power because if it doesn't save us completely, it doesn't save us at all. It would be heresy to suggest so, that goes against the very doctrine that Paul is declaring. But we do look to these good works as evidence of where our affections lie and if we have been made new in Christ. For when the Spirit is poured out upon God's people, we naturally begin walking in these manifestations of how God has adjusted our affection. And when we do have those days and those moments where we are down or we fail in walking in this new state, we recognize that we are still flesh and we are warring against the ingrained habits and thought patterns of these broken earthly vessels. But ultimately, our joy, we know, is found in Christ and his ways. And so even when we fall, even when we fail, we confess those moments to the Lord and repent and jump into what we know to be true and good the good works that God has prepared before us. We jump back into obedience to his word and submission to his spirit as he inhabits his local church. 
Friends, this morning, as we look so explicitly at what occurred in the death and resurrection of Christ, and as we ponder what it means for us and for this world, I want to ask you if this passage is describing what has taken place in your life. Have you been made new, recreated, converted to Christ in a way that can only be explained by the miraculous means of God's grace? Are your affections drawn to Christ, to his word and his people, in a way where your heart yearns for them when you are not constantly immersed in them? Are you filled with gratitude at the fact that God's grace has been lavished upon you in spite of your sin, in spite of your best efforts, and simply because God has given you his sovereign grace? And when you have down moments or moments where you are overcome by the remnants of your sinfulness, do you run quickly to confession and repentance? desiring to remove any barrier between you and your Lord and his people? If so, if this describes you, then brother or sister, you can be assured that Christ is at work in you and he will be faithful to complete that work until the day that you will be with him in glory. And when you struggle or encounter suffering, recognize that this Christ told us that this would happen but that we didn't need to do better. We simply need to fully embrace the creation that has already taken place and live in the truth of who we have become. For just as an apple tree does not have to work to produce apples, Christ's new creations will simply walk out the truth of what has already been accomplished as we lean into Jesus every day. And just as sure as the resurrection of Christ occurred on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, you can rejoice that in Christ you will see the Lord at your own resurrection when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Amen? Amen? But maybe there are some here today who know that this does not describe you. Perhaps you have embraced some Christian like religious ideas hoping to reform your life and work harder at being better or more moral. Perhaps you claim Christianity because it's what you grew up with, but now you reject it. Or maybe you like being part of a group like this church and you have friends or a spouse that professes Christ and you think that faith comes by that connection. If this is the case, then perhaps you know that your faith is lacking because you do not see the evidence of affection towards Christ or his word or his people. There are even some of you that haven't paid attention to a single word I've said this entire morning because you got drugged here by somebody thinking that it was loving to come on Easter. If any of this describes you, then today... Christ is calling you to himself. He is calling you to look straight into the fact of the historical event of his death and resurrection. And he's asking you to reckon with it. A man died and resurrected 2,000 years ago who claimed to be God 
What do you do with that fact? This good news of what Christ has done that Paul so beautifully proclaims, it demands a response. And if your response is not submission to Christ as Lord, then the only other response is to harden your heart further in spiritual death, awaiting the sure judgment and wrath that is to come. If you know that Christ is calling you to himself, if you know that he has done a work in you because your affections are turned toward him, then today is the first day in which you are giving your life over to him. And the pastors of this church, myself included, we will be up here at the end of the gathering as we do the benediction. Pick one of us and come talk to us. We would love to talk with you afterward about what it is to declare that you would like to follow Christ because of the conversion he's done in you and that you would like to be baptized. We'd love to talk to you about what it is to walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you are a person who has grown up with Christianity and maybe even say you're a Christian right now, but you realize this morning that you have been walking in deception and that it took today for Christ to do a work in you, don't be ashamed to come and talk to us. Friends, that's my story. I walked in a Christian home proclaiming to be a Christian for years before Christ fully captured my heart and I had to bend the knee and say, Lord, I have been deceived thinking I followed you when I did not. But today I give my life to you because you have done all the work. You have shown your sovereign grace. Come talk to us, please. It's a matter of eternal life and death. For those of us, though, who know what Paul is proclaiming this morning, because we have experienced it and see it evidenced on our own, in our own and in one another's lives, let's celebrate all that Jesus' death and resurrection has accomplished. For friends, all of these can be claimed by you that you have been saved by grace, you have been made alive, you have been raised up and seated by Christ. And in the coming ages, you will see the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards him, and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. What a cause for celebration on this Easter Sunday. Amen? He is risen. He is risen Let's now collectively proclaim our allegiance to Christ alone as we state our common faith and then remember the sacrifice that Christ has provided to make us his own as we go to the table of communion. Would you stand with me? And we are going to speak the Apostles' Creed. And as uh, I've said before, when doing this creed or the Nicene Creed, we're going to say the word Catholic, that we believe in the Catholic Church. But friends, that is not just a denomination. That word Catholic means universal. The true church in all times and all places. And so... Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. 
He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.